Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Tiff Stevenson and we had a chat that covered everything from uh, free speech to Joe Rogan uh, to abortion and the debating tactics that people use. Um, so I really enjoyed the chat. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. We, there is now uh, only about five days left of The Fringe. I finish on Monday the 26th. My show is at 8.45. Uh, Tiff is also doing a show. You should also go see Laura Davis if you get the chance. She's she. We all sort of clash, but if you're here, do come and see all of us separately. Uh, what else? Um... On the 10th of September, I am doing Savage in Melbourne. It means a lot to me if you are in Melbourne, if you know anyone in Melbourne. Um, if you can't afford a ticket, email me. I would like as many of you as possible in the audience because um, I'm not sure. If you're not there, I don't I don't know what kind of people will be and I would like it to be good. It's a show that means a lot to me to do right. Um, if you're not in Melbourne, I'm doing one on the 29th in uh, 29th of August in London at the Museum of Comedy. And if you're in Edinburgh, I'm doing one on the 24th of August at the Yotel, which is a very odd venue at sort of the arse end of town. Uh, so if you are in Edinburgh, that's free. You can come along. The one in London you have to buy tickets for. The one in Melbourne, I think uh, you can buy tickets for, but if you can't afford it, email me and I will put you on the door list because it's a very big room. That's all the stuff, other than, of course, my Patreon subscribers. I would like to say thank you so much, especially during Edinburgh. Your support has meant so much to me. Just being able to chat with you about what's happening and, and tell you about my life. My Edinburgh blogs come out every few days and... Uh, just just chatting with you about them has been truly lovely. I've also had the pleasure of meeting some of you uh, here, uh, listeners to the podcast, and that always gives me just such an absolute thrill. Enough from me. I will let you get on with listening to the podcast, and I will talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. All right, uh, so... There's your tea. Um, who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Tiff Stevenson. I'm drinking green tea. Ah, that's good. I seem to have lost my tea, but... Um... Oh, your tea's next door, is it not? In the living room? Yes. Well, I can talk alone while she's, while she's gone. I can talk about her, can't I? Um, I hear her show's going great at the Fringe. I haven't been able to see it because it's on at the same time as mine, which is a bit annoying. Um... But yeah, uh, I'm hearing I'm hearing great things, guys. <laughs> She's back. I'm back. How are you? <laughs> Good. Not too bad. What you been wrestling with? Ah. What you drinking. What have I been wrestling with? I've been wrestling with you know trying to keep sane up here as we do. Yes. I feel like um, Twitter is like walking around in a live version of Instagram. Yeah. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> where you're constantly going, oh, why is that person more popular than me? And, oh, how come their show... Why Should I be naked in my poster if I was naked? Would that help? Um, so, yeah, so I'm trying not to constantly compare myself to everyone else. And then on, on yesterday, in fact, I had a bit of a breakthrough as to why I'm here. I'm like, oh, I'm here because I love doing stand-up. I love the show. And the audiences have been incredible this year. I've really... There's been lots of my repeat punters, and you have the same thing, you know, people who come year on year. And I've had lots of new people too. And I think all the female comics are getting the PhDs and the scholars <laughs> into their shows, which has been quite an interesting little... Uh... It is an odd thing. It's an odd thing that there's a kind of... Not quite general, but a sort of an assumption that if it's a female comedian, she must be doing something interesting. Right, which I think that's a fair assumption because the the fight just to get through to the to a level where we could do a show at the fringe. Yeah, but I wonder where how that built up over time and what that means for sort of maybe maybe it means I don't know because I'm I'm for me traditionally I've always felt like I've been um, people have assumed that when I'm doing something I'm not doing it on purpose. I've often been sort of not accused but you know people say oh it's sort of a messy show or it, but it all surprisingly comes together or you know that yeah kind there's of no thing. surprise I crafted it this way because I'm good yeah so th I've sort of always felt like that and so to have this kind of sudden upsurge of people going well I assume that because it's a woman she must be doing something interesting 
That's fascinating, isn't it? That's weird. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've not had the benefit of the doubt for so long. That's the that's the term I use. It used to be with surreal comedy or anything that was a bit kind of crazy. If a woman was doing it, someone like Holly Burns, if she was doing a crazy thing, they were like, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. And then you go, oh, but John Kearns does. You know, and he watched someone like Holly Burns coming through. He was like, oh, she's a big inspiration for me. So, um, yeah, so it's interesting that... that um, whereas I, I'm of the opinion that actually, um, just to get to a point where we could do the festival, just to get booked in places, just we've had to be undeniable. Mm. And we've also had to cultivate our own audiences to a certain to a certain extent. So in those spaces where we're not allowed to come through, we've had to find another route because that door's shut in your face. So create a podcast, which you've done. You know, Deborah's done with The Guilty Feminist. You create your own network. You, I've got my Lush podcast. You know, you, you find ways to access people that are different from the routes that are being offered to all the men. Yes. Because those routes, if they let women through at all, let through one or two. Yes. And then they tend to be of a certain class background. Yeah. Or with the right agent or yeah, under 35. <laughs> like, a so lot these of all. Boxes that get ticked. Well, all these um, extra criteria get added on. Yeah. That, that you seem to be, oh, no, it, now it's not enough to, to, to go, you need women. I also need to be, a, you know, that's why I was so chuffed, actually, that Jamie Godley had a huge piece in The Guardian this weekend. Because I was like, yeah, you know, elevate Janie's voice. Janie's been a brilliant stand-up for years. Like, her background... Decades. Th- yeah, yeah, decades. Her background, uh, the discussion around class and everything else, which is a, a big part of my show this year. But I was like, yeah, we should elevate Janie's voice. And, like... Do you have any idea, like, how brilliant Janie's had to be, how strong she's had to be to get through what she's got through to get to this level in her career, you know? And and I think, wow, you know, like, she was saying that... I think she did Have I Got News For You uh, in the year just gone, but, you know, the fact that it took Janie that long to get on that show. Yeah. And then she was doing all this, this sort of satirical stuff in the last few years she's been doing really satirical stuff on her Twitter and stuff and yeah, her voiceovers. Yeah, if you don't know her, she's quite uh, comparatively famous in the news for when Trump arrived at his golf course in Scotland, she was the one holding the sign saying, Trump is a cunt. Yeah. Uh, which is maybe not, you know, champagne satire, but <laughs> certainly made his point. Well, uh, interestingly, sometimes saying something plainly uh, gets more people interested than a funny joke. Mm. So, uh, like, literally about a week and a half ago... Katie Hopkins tweeted something about um, about Sadiq Khan, about the six-year-old bit, that horrific thing that happened at the Tate Modern. A six-year-old being pushed off a platform by a 17-year-old, and she was like, this is Sadiq Khan's London, this is Sadiq Londonistan or whatever. She doesn't realise that to stand something is to be a fan of it. <laughs> um, so, but she tweeted that and basically aimed it all at Sadiq and told him that he was the problem. And I think I'd quote tweeted it saying, what are you talking about, you mad cunt? And that got retweeted about 15,000 times. And I got about 5,000 followers on Twitter. And I was like, oh, that's more than any joke I've ever done. Yeah, it's an and interesting thing, the Twitter the Twitter landscape, because it's simultaneously not at all real life, and yet it has such an impact on the people who choose to engage with it. And I mean that as somebody who, you know, if somebody says something mean, someone who I've never met, it'll make me feel really weird or whatever that happens to be. People seek you out in order to argue with you or or whatever. I read a really interesting article the other day about the algorithm that tends to occur so that small, smaller Twitter people, like I'm, I don't know, whatever, 15,000 people, uh, we can have our opinions and we can take our positions and we can be nuanced and so on and so forth. But once you get up above about 20,000 followers bots and and trolls come to your account because by 
saying something to you, they boost the number of people who see their who see their tweets and their tweets. responses. It's, it's not about what you say or how you say it or who you are or what you're doing. It is about the numbers. And that's why you have to block them so that they can't tweet you at all. Yeah, so it's just a number game. It's not even enough to mute them now. No, it's not enough to mute them. It's, it is this number game. And then, and then at the same time, these pure numbers, completely devoid of personality. This isn't personal. These attacks are not personal. They are are calculated mechanistic ways of getting more engagement on these artificial accounts or you know these sort of sociopathic accounts either either bots or trolls sociopaths who need this attention or this pretend attention in order to feel human it's just maths it's not personal and yet for the people for the women particularly who are on the platform this like just cascade of abuse is impossible to receive as anything other than abuse. Abuse, yeah, you can't receive it neutrally. It's really hard. Yeah, I think I, I maybe read the same thing, but it was like once you get beyond 30,000, it's, it's sort of unplayable. 20,000, 30,000 is un, unplayable yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, I think it's from 20,000 it starts to be really um, sort of orderly. Yes, It's like a campaign, coordinated. it's coordinated, it's, it's rhythmic, it's purposive. And then once you get up to, yeah, anything more than 30,000, you are just getting at least what looks and feels and appears to be hatred all day, every day, for no reason. Yeah. No matter what you say. Yeah. And then if you say anything controversial on top of that... Even if you're bulletproof, it's sort of hard not to absorb that. And I think I think about Michelle Wolf when she did that correspondence dinner and the amount of sort of threats and hatred she must have got like it, it's so impressive how she handled it and how she sort of came through that I think I saw her on The View being interviewed by Whoopi and then Joy Joy is it Joy be her but it was who is it McCain Megan McCain was really really aggressive and she was like you're attacking a woman for her looks and she was like I wasn't I made a joke about smoky eye makeup and you go that joke that was a really clever mm. funny joke and uh, someone on the panel said to her, and I was like, these are like the insidious ones because these aren't bots, these aren't trolls. But someone on the panel went, they've said that they may not book another comedian again after what you did on there. It might have been Meghan McCain, like after you, like how you roasted and they, you know, and then you went after the press, they may not book a comedian. How do you feel about that? And she just went, I don't care. Which was the perfect response of like, yeah. imagine if she went, oh, I'm so sorry if they never book another comedian again. To, she was like, I did my job. I don't care. And care what they're going to do as a response to that. I'm not, I'm not responsible for that. Yeah, which is a really interesting. But that question. was women doing that to her, you know, like on a, you know. This is the real question. I do, uh, that is kind of a, a hallmark of our times of how responsible are you for what people do in response to you? Yeah. So there's this thing of sort of I don't know, deplatforming or or. I don't care if I'm angry or if people respond to my anger wrongly, I'm still going to be angry. Like, at what point... I don't where's, know. It sort of where's social and personal responsibility and where do the two blend and end and meet? And Yeah, I feel really torn about it. And I was talking about this with Helen Jenkins the other week of... of I believe in this free market of ideas... I believe in if somebody is wrong, talking to them about it. I don't believe in this shutting people down thing. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I acknowledge that there are plenty of ways that people's platforms or speech can be really harmful, really genuinely harmful, that you can have these insidious ideas that get put in that have these kind of polluting consequences and de degrade the discourse and all of that. And I still think in some short of hate speech, all of that should be defended. Yes. In a free market of ideas, and I have suddenly begun to doubt, well, certainly, certainly the market of ideas on Facebook and Twitter isn't free. It's guided by algorithms. It's cultivated in certain directions. It's not a fair fight. It's not, yeah. it's not an equal playing field. Well, di people, different people have different platforms, right? Yeah. Um, and we're probably going to come on to the... Joe Rogan discussion in a minute because we were talking about that before. Yeah. Of how much responsibility you have when your audience grows to a level that can possibly affect change. 
Yeah, well, he, uh, I don't know, it's something, sync, uh, the number that gets thrown around is 60 million listeners. I don't know if that's per week or per month or subscribers or what. But that makes him significantly more viewed than a large number of television programs. Right. In the world. Yeah. You know, so that's a lot. And then on top of that, you know, he he's just a dude that's his certainly that's his public figure is he's just a guy he's very likable he's very enthusiastic about stuff he's very open-minded arguably too open-minded in that he was like a no moon landing conspiracy theorist and then this chap came on and explained it to him and then he was like oh yeah obviously it is a thing right which was a beautiful thing to watch or listen to myself I can't listen to more than a couple of episodes of it because I start to feel like, particularly the very blokey ones, I start to feel like if I were in that room with them, which is what the podcast gives you the illusion of. Yes. I start it's just to feel, written for you. It's just for you. Yeah, I, but I start to feel if I've listened to too many episodes of, of Joe Rogan that if I were in that room, they'd be ignoring me. Yeah, of there's course a, they would. <laughs> there's something in the tone of the way that, they, that he engages. And he does have female guests on, but I feel like he's all... It's a, He's a little bit of an old-school guy yeah. in that he, he doesn't necessarily, in a default way, think of women as... People? As like him. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, like they're yes. different yeah. kinds But that's what of, I mean by people. Like yeah, yeah. That we're different... able to, to, to converse on the same level about these ideas and thoughts and... Well, he does have these very interesting female guests on, but he, I always feel like he sees them as outliers, and I don't know where I'm getting that from. That could just be prejudice on my part, but it is just something in the tone of the way that he thinks and sort of expresses his... Even women he likes, it's, it feels like they're a different species. Right. That's it. And, and without saying that there are no differences between men and women on the broadest possible spectrum, like if you're being very normative, of course... There are men who I am more like than some women. There yeah. are some women who are so different from me yeah. that I am more like some men. But as a general rule, you kind of fall into broad. Well, when we're broad talking about things. ideas. Yeah. But you know, yeah, in this world of like academia or thoughts or conversations, that's where I think there isn't or shouldn't be a species differentiation between men and women. So the I was just searching for a tweet while you were on. Mm. And see, this is the... Interestingly, this account has 132,000 followers and it's called Mental Health Notes at Depression Notes. Mm-hmm. And they did a tweet the other day saying, retweet... Oh, no, it's not retweet. It is... Things not to joke about. Depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, PTSD, cancer, panic attacks, autism, OCD, people who have died, disabilities, rape, suicide, thanks. Which is insane. Now, arguably, that's a platform. That's over 100,000 followers on Twitter. And people have kicked back against this. Yeah. But it's like, what are you talking? Well, I've joked about over half of those. Yeah. Again, it's the aim of the joke. But don't come... You know, it's had 20,000 likes and you think... God, do people think there's a set of rules that that there are rules and limitations as to what we can joke about or there aren't. There's only the skill of the comedian doing it and the angle at which they are doing it. So if a person with disabilities is joking about their own circumstance, you know, then... Well, well, even so, I think... But anyone should be able to joke about anything. I think so too. And I, I think this is a really interesting one, the kind of the right to talk about any subject... I, I, do, I believe in that, and that could just be as a comedian. I've seen people talk about all sorts of different things. It could be as somebody who was obsessed with books as a child. I read many books written by women about male experiences or books written by men about female experiences or about the experiences of people of different races or countries or nationalities or classes or alien races. Yeah. And all, you know, the books that I liked... You know, Ursula Le Guin's The Earthsea Trilogy, she's a woman writing about the experience of a wizard who is a man, and it's one an incredibly moving piece. Yeah. Or she, you know, The Left Hand of Darkness, which took me a few goes to get into, and when I read it, it turned my mind inside out. Women are very good at relating to experiences that aren't directly linked to yes. our, narrat- our own narrative and personal experience. We can enjoy something that is not about us. 
Yes, but I think everyone has that capacity, everyone has that capacity. not the ability. Yes, that capacity. And also, I guess that's interesting, isn't it? Because then people get upset now when it isn't for this kind of straight, white, male, middle-aged... But it is a matter kind of... I think that's a matter of because, practice. Yeah, because they're the default. So all of a sudden they're like, well, this is not for us. This doesn't... I don't see myself in this. And you're like, that's fine. We've not seen ourselves in hundreds of things and we can still enjoy it. Yeah, and I feel like I always did see myself in those shoes. Or you can see yourself in aspects of, or you can yeah. see yourself becoming, you know, there depending on how... But 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 also, I'm someone who's, who's... I guess I've always tried to kind of... I had jokes about suicide, but I was like, if you've ever experienced a thing, I think you're allowed to make jokes about it. But that doesn't mean if you haven't, you're not. Yeah, I but think... But that's, that's the way I've always done it. I'm kind of like... I kind of like I'm talking about my experience and I've still got grief from people for joking about suicide even though I'm a person who has attempted suicide. <laughs> I think I think there's a sort of a division here in terms of like using the word aloud. I think if you've experienced a thing you and it, this like, like taking this completely aside from what is allowed legally. Yeah, yeah. So what permitted actually permitted what I what I think is it is easier if you've experienced something to talk about it in a useful way in a way that has insight yeah it's easier for you to have that kind of insight if you come from that experience yeah and so if you do not come from that experience then I think there's kind of maybe what they call in law a rebuttable presumption right that you don't know what the fuck you're talking about right so, so this assumption coming in, this person who's clearly never experienced whatever it happens to be, sexism or whatever, comes on stage and goes, let me tell you about how women feel. Your immediate presumption is, all right. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm this listening. better be good. This better be good. <laughs> yeah. But if it is good, then that's fine. That's great. That's yeah. great. How great. How wonderful that someone has been able to put themselves in someone else's shoes in such a good way with such a good insight that it's useful in the world, that it helps other people who might be like them to understand where someone else is... Co- like, that's great. They, you should absolutely not ban men from talking about the female experience or about, about you know, sexual discrimination or whatever it happens to be. I think it always is, is people should be allowed to talk and everyone should be allowed to talk about the things, but a group that's not part of it doesn't get to dominate it overwhelmingly. Yes. That's a fairly good rule, right? Yes. So and anyone can talk about it, but if there's one group who appear to be dominating all the discussions on it, you go, oh, okay, well then we need to have a look at this. Yeah, and all of that, I think, is where I come back to this idea of the free market of ideas. Because actually, the free market is a bad analogy. Because an unregulated market ends up with children in factories. Yeah. Like, the the invisible hand of the market is dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think about the things, and I said this to Helen last week, of I think about the things that we think of as the best places to have good conversations that find truth, and they're like law courts, the most regulated form of speech. Yeah. So where do we find a middle ground between sort of fascistically controlling the amount that each person or type of person is allowed to speak about each subject, that kind of over-regulation and the free market that ends up with monopolies of control over speech and, for example, a democracy that is full of people being fed the wrong information and therefore not a democracy at all but a... like a, what a kleptocracy, a, a, a bureaucracy, like a, a thing where the people who have the most money control a, a the information. A fascist dictatorship? Yes, but like a self, and also with the algorithms, it's like a self-created fascist dictatorship as far as information flow goes. Yeah. Everyone's, li- everyone, like people I agree with and people I disagree with are living in these, these chambers that... Like, what are they called? Um, osmosis? Reverse osmosis? Fil- filtration tanks. Right, right. That, that so they're not absorbing? They're only absorbing certain particle sizes. Right, oh, okay, right. <laughs> that, that, that they're like tea strainers. A completely incorrect filtration view of the world. Right. You get a completely wrong idea of the world. 
and everyone is getting a slightly different, completely wrong view of the world. Right. And that's not how democracy works. Yeah. Because it's not that's not a free and open market. That is, again, that's children in factories or cages, as it might. Yeah. And then I guess within that, our democracy or our courts of law are then imperfect within themselves and subject to those kind of inherent biases and prejudice that have existed that are down to the individual who is a judge, that are down to the individual who is a lawyer. And then that, but if you go too far down that route, you just end up unpacking everything until... Yes, and yeah, so this is, this is the thing of, like, you can't bin those things just because they don't work perfectly. Yeah. Like, that's the idea of... Like, I think this is the thing uh, about... Uh, the idea that the, the dialectic process of the court and of legislation, this back and forth, and even of the democracy, the party system, you swing back and forth and you bounce back and forth, comes from this idea... And I think it's true that we work better in this useful argument situation. So not just in fighting with one another, but in the process of conflict on a shared goal. Yeah. Arguing about how something might best work ends up with the best outcome. Yes. Not Compared with everyone agreeing or compared with other systems, that back and forth, back and forth, back and forth argument... It's more annoying. Yeah. But takes you further forward. The struggle is progress. Yes. There's no progress without struggle. And so the the idea of, for example, like censorship in the government, I think it's important that we have a constant argument about censorship. Yeah. And where that line should be, children aren't allowed to watch this when you're 15, you should be allowed to watch this. Is it swear words that's more offensive or violence or sex? Well, nothing's more... changed here because the grey area was always the bit you have to negotiate. Yes, grey area to... is where is where those, those ongoing conversations happen. Yeah. And what was hard and fast 20 years ago is not necessarily going to be hard and fast today. Th- yes, things that weren't offensive 20 years ago are now offensive and things that were offensive 20 years ago are now not offensive. Yeah. And what I I guess what I'm arguing for is to stake out the parameters of that gray area as something to be protected. I think something's been lost in the conversation, the idea that we should all want to nail all this down. Yes. And it's like, no, no, no. You we... can't legislate a lot of stuff of this because you can't legislate human emotions and feelings and physical attraction and, you know, like I want <laughs> For us to be arguing about this kind of thing forever. Yeah. Because hierarchies of oppression are not fixed, because they're situations, we need to be having that argument forever. Yeah. It's not an argument we can solve. It's an argument we all need to exhaustingly and annoyingly keep having forever. Yeah. You can't finish it. You can't fix it. it will well, that's why stand-up will always exist. Yeah. <laughs> because all the problems will never be solved. Yeah. Because someone said to me, the show's so amazing. <laughs> After my Edinburgh show, that's not me going, oh, the show's so amazing. But a woman came up and went, I loved it so much. She was like, I'm just annoyed because I thought we'd fixed all of this. And then a guy went, well, if you'd have fixed all of it, she'd have nothing to talk about. And I was like, there'll always be something to talk about. Yeah. It happened when I was in, um, when I was in America, I wore a, thank God for abortion t-shirt in LA and had a lot of people worriedly contact me going that's a bit you know might be a bit of a statement I don't normally wear t-shirts with political statements or ideological statements on them um but um it's a super cool t-shirt and it was hot in LA so I wore it out and uh, lots of people stopped me to go that is so amazing and then like my mum would love that and then I was in Los Feliz and there was a woman in a notorious um RGB t-shirt Mm-hmm. Um, oh no, RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah. And she high fived me. She was on her phone when she walked past. That was quite a nice moment. And then this woman stopped me in her late 60s and she was close to tears and she went, I love that t shirt, it's so brilliant. And then she said, I- I'm so sorry. And I went, What for? And she went, Because I-, I thought this was behind us. I thought we'd done this, a similar thing to what the woman at the show said. Mm. And she went, I just, I don't have the energy to fight anymore. And I said, well, you don't need to. I'll fight for a little bit. And then when I'm tired, someone else will fight. 
and we all take a bit of that battle, if we all take a piece of that fight, that is aiming in some way towards progress. Yeah, I think I fall on this grey area again when it comes to things like the abortion debate. And I know that's a terrible thing for people who have to fight it. But I think, you know, our our autonomy over our bodies is something that should always be fought for as against our responsibility to other people in society. So this question, I think, can never be really solved, that we, that we, we need to have, on one hand, we absolutely need to have absolute autonomy over our own bodies for no reason other than that's a thing human that we right. have. That's a human right, and in the same way it, that men do. Yeah, and whether it's being able to pierce your ears or whether it's being able to have an operation that you need or an operation that you want or an operation that you feel like having or the right to control if you're making a person or not. Yeah. And at the same time, I think it's important for us to go, what is a person? At what point does life begin? Like, those arguments need to keep happening. I think they sort of... It's interesting, though, because I and think there's And what's your duty a... towards a, a father, for example? And what's the his duty towards you? And what is a man's responsibility when it comes to that whole situation? And what... All of that, I don't think, can be nailed down. No, but I feel like... The idea of not nailing that down means that then women don't get to have that autonomy. Yeah. So, so that's the thing that people do where this, interestingly, you know, and I talk about this in the show, historically, because um, unwanted pregnancies have already, have, have always existed, but historically abortion used to be about protecting the mother. Mm. And somehow we flipped in the discourse to this being about the rights of an unborn child. Mm. And you're going, no, that sells. Like, yeah. you know, you can use that same argument to go back and go, when a man masturbates, he's wasting, you know, billions of potential babies. Well, until we solve the hard problem of consciousness, this isn't something that we can yeah. nail down. But by going the rights of that possible thing always yeah. comes in front of a woman... That's the, wrong, that's the wrong starting point. Well, this is something that happens with baseball players too, though. They, when, when they're recruiting baseball players, they will recruit someone with potential and pay them a significant amount more than someone with a proven track record. We always overvalue potential. Right. potential is infinite. Yeah. What exists is... Finite. Is finite. And that is, a, uh, that is a kind of psychology. That's a psychological trick. That's a logical fallacy that we have as people. And maybe it's led to something good evolutionarily speaking. I don't know why we have that bias. But that we then undervalue what we have. Yes. And in well, that, there's that, a fully formed human-like woman person in front of you and now you're saying this is an idea of and it could be as early as taking it away from the abortion debate because it's so loaded and gets people's nads moving but like relationships people cheat on their partners all of the time because they know what their partner is and they don't know what that hot person over there is yeah we overvalue potential yeah but i think as well it is you know um just to go back on it briefly yeah only because because I'm interested in this idea of the ancient Romans and Greeks having ways to deal with it. And the idea yes. then was the mother is important. Yeah. So, you know, you can go into the importance of any person. Basically, they were like, if the mother doesn't want a child, if we think there's a problem, if we think she can't give birth, if we think she might die giving birth, if, you know, that they were like, the mother exists, she's a human that exists, maybe has four or five other kids, maybe has a husband... We can't lose that person, so we valued her higher. And that's the flip historically. And, also, and it happened after we got the vote. That was when they, the fear of women having too much power, it was like, oh, we need to... Oh, what's that? What's happening? I think that's just my washing machine. Mm. Um, I think it's that's a really interesting one because in that instance, the same logical fallacy is at play. Yeah. Oh, the same logical bias, uh, which is the that in this instance, the woman is seen as the potential mother of a lot more children. Yeah. And so the potential is shifted, that idea of potential is shifted from the unborn fetus to the mother as the potential mother of men. And that's more of a practical thing in a time where people would have had a lot more children and more of the children would have died. 
So like in an economic sense, the children were worth less. Now women have fewer children and that idea of the potential is flipped over. Yeah. And this this kind of... Um, well, someone like Savita Halpenar, who had like an unviable... Um, had an unviable pregnancy yeah. and was refused a termination on religious grounds in Ireland. Yeah, and, and gave her sepsis and she died. Down. Yeah, she had sepsis and she and she died. So of course there are discussions around when when life begins, and then you know there's a lot of scientists who are like it doesn't begin until that um, you know no matter whether it's humans or whether it's animals or whatever it is you know until that uh, potent well, to that child what can survive outside of mm. the mother. But, I mean, that's arguably not until a child is two years old. <laughs> I would say 25, but, uh, yeah. But, but, um, but, yeah, so, you know, there's there's kind of... Um, there's kind of a lot of... Um, I think the degree to when it's... To, to when it's okay, so mm. maybe the limits... Yeah. ...which are set, you know, and then, then in... This is the problem in the States, because they're talking about reducing it to, like, six weeks and, te- you know when a lot of women may not even know they're pregnant. And the, I mean, this is also something I was talking about on Stranger Than Sci-Fi, which is this show we did for BBC Radio 4 about science and science fiction. The idea now of this incubator technology and womb technology, artificial womb technology. Yeah. I think that, again, changes the whole conversation. Well, also, like, in one of the states in, in America, I don't know whether it's Georgia or Mississippi, but if women miscarry, they're making them bury the bodies but i mean do they know how many women miscarried so i don't know i've had i've had chemical pregnancies which is technically yeah a miscarriage and that is where you have so this is what i mean about the debate around these sort of areas this that's where you have an egg that has been fertilized but it hasn't attached itself to the womb yeah so it just comes out as a period it comes out later a few days later it's a very very early miscarriage yeah um, I mean, of the friends that I've been intimate uh, friends with who have had babies uh, in the recent, in the last two years, out of say seven people who I know very well, well enough to be told private information, um, five of them have had multiple miscarriages. Yes. And so, what you want to make that worse? Yeah. Well, and also from that, if you think about how many kids people used to have, and they'd be like, a couple of them are disposable. So when we talk about this sanctity of life, if I look at my great... The air and the spare. Yeah, yeah, the air and the spare. So my great-grandmother had like 11, maybe nine of which survived. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah, we just pop out, a few of them are going to die. And I was like, so where's the sanctity then? Why is it obsessively when it's a fetus, Mm. or not even a fetus, a zygote, a bunch of cells... Why is this, you know... Well, here's the question then. When, when you do have a, a, a fetus in you, and if, as is going to be the case in the next 50 years, this kind of artificial womb technology is available, at what point can an outside source say, you're not eating healthily enough, we're going to take that child, or we're going to prosecute you? Or, you know, well, there'll be limits on of... the age of, that a woman's allowed to do it, I'm sure. Even though there's not limits on a guy. So Jeff Goldblum's got two babies now and he's in his 60s. Yeah. So there's no limit there. But I'm sure that will be... It comes with a hell of a lot of judgment and questioning morals. And and we just don't with guys. Mm. They can just spunk about all over the place with people pregnant. And, you know, and that's fine. Um, But it's just... It's... um, Yeah. I mean, there there is a point. There's a line... And I sort of tried to explore this a bit in a play that I've written. It's sort of three quarters written. I might try and bring it next year. But uh, there's a... Because uh, this is the thing I explore in it. There's a... What point is your body yours and does it become, does it belong to the state? So when we start doing these nannying things of putting drinking regulations in or smoking or putting taxes or doing things where you go, well, no, this is my body. I get to decide. I have autonomy. I have freedom. I get to decide what I put in it. Well, what yeah. comes out of it? <laughs> you could have an... Incre- I mean, as a thought experiment, you could have a completely duty-bound society in which anybody who wanted to have potentially pregnancy-causing sex 
would have to prove that they had the resources to lead, to support a child. Right. So oh. I've got a bit in the show about this. And I've, it comes off the back of the Starbucks wound-bothering. At what point that someone who's working in Starbucks thinks it's okay to refuse a woman coffee, that he gets to have that dis- decision over a woman who's pregnant and knows her own body. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's this, it's this question of... You could go that way of like this is which I've heard these arguments of you shouldn't have sex unless you're willing to have a baby. That was my that was my attitude growing up. I was brought up very much in this kind of Buddhist mold of you have to take the consequences of your actions, and it made me incredibly wary about what are a rapist consequences then. Well, this is the thing. This is the question. <laughs> so if you, I, I was brought up with this very strong sense of duty. And that was kind of my idea of the world. Not for other people, but for myself. For, well, I wouldn't want to do something unless I was willing to take all of the consequences. So that that was how I thought. And it was a very uh, moderately repressed way to think growing up. Um, and that's one way. So if you decide you could, ru- you could run a society like that, anyone, male or female, who wanted to have sex would have to write up a paper go to a bank, like applying for a home loan, and could prove that they could support a child up until the age of majority before they were allowed to have sex at all. £300,000 is what it costs in the current climate to raise a child to 18. Yeah. So you'd have to prove in the same way as applying for a home loan that this is something you could feasibly do or you're not allowed to bang. Yeah. That's one side. That's one way of running things. The other way of running things is anyone's allowed to do whatever they want to anyone else. So we have to find somewhere in the middle of those yes. two states. Like Yeah, and I know what you're saying about it being an ongoing discussion. I just, my, my wariness of agreeing with that, I guess, is that I see, pe- you know, I see people on the pro-life side going, at six weeks a baby dreams, and you're like, that's not, you've just pulled this out, there's no evidence for it. Tw- and false it- information of like going, these are aborted babies I found in a bin behind a clinic in India, and you're like, yeah, that's a those aren't, that's not what they look like. like. So that kind of propaganda or idea, so I guess when you open that up, it gives those kind of people the weapon to you know where there are scientists and people who study yeah you know well, uh, it's the primal streak is the point at which uh, scientific experiment isn't allowed on on fetal tissue right so they have a, they have a whole chart of things and yeah I, I i understand your wariness and that kind of brings us right back to the beginning of this conversation about joe rogan of like having these conversations i find really interesting yeah as an academic and intellectual exercise what is our responsibility small though my audience is what's my responsibility to someone who's listening to this what they go forward with if they are motivated in one direction or another to say you know what I mean like I'm yeah this is the question because for you you're thinking that like that if I if I say oh let's concede this point they will run with it because you yes. know how malicious some of the people are in this conversation. Yeah. There are people in this conversation who would murder someone for trying to have an abortion. Like, yeah. you know, that's... Yeah. I, know, I, I did a tweet, I think, of, a few weeks back where I was like, um, pro-lifers, would you, would you abort a fetus if it was going to grow up to be a doctor who performed abortions? <laughs> and called it Stevenson's Paradox, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so, so... Often, yeah, and I mean, bad faith arguments and everything else come into that. And look, science brings us new information all the time. Mm. Now, are we, but, but now we're living in a, a post-science world. Huh. And this is where the whole thing becomes a bit like kind of going, well, we can undermine democracy or law by going, look at the individual biases of the judge. And if you start going down that, if it's not perfect, yeah. it doesn't mean that it's not working to a certain degree, right? But... I feel that like with, if we're drawing a line with science, yeah, but that seems to have disappeared now. Science, because we've got flat earth people coming back. We've got anti-vaccination people existing. Yeah. So now where do we go? Are we having, are we even having these debates with people who are even aware of like basic facts about the universe and because we are not in an open and free market for ideas. We're in like a 19th century 
children in factories world. We're in a PT fucking Barnum. What what is happening? This is this is the kind of the ideas landscape right now is smokestacks and people with fossy jaw from licking phosphorus matches from you know like that. Yeah. This is what's happening. And I I don't know in twenty or thirty years time if we'll look back in the same way as we did in pre to the pre industrial revolution things to the industrial revolution wrongs if we'll look back in 10 or 20 or 30 years and go look how badly they misused information look how badly they warped people and destroyed people and and in the same way as you look back at those pictures of women in factories with their jaws falling off right yeah this was so wrong (laughs) how did people not see yeah uh yeah we we should wrap this up it feels like we need an not another age of enlightenment, but I feel like the democratisation of, or the internet giving rise to any, like, all voices, yeah. everyone is heard, but we have no grading system for how authorised or educated or like, those voices are. Yeah. Like you were saying about the trolls or bots. Then bots aren't voices, they're bots. <laughs> but we hear them as voices, we see them as voices, yeah. they impact us as voices. So what do we do in a world where half the people we're talking to aren't people? They're robots. Yeah. There are robots telling you to kill yourself. How is this not more frightening? Yes. Yeah. Like, how is, are people not more panicked about the implications of the fact that there are genuinely robots in my pocket telling me to kill myself? Yeah. That's the rise of the machines right there. Yeah. They don't even care. They're just bots. Yeah. They're just doing maths. Yeah. But I'm being told to kill myself. And I can't tell. If it's a robot or a human. There's no rule, there's no measure, there's no flag, there's no colour, there's no highlight. Ratio being a thing that keeps coming up. Ah, ratioed, you know. But then it's almost like a race to anything. If a certain group gets hold of you and goes, oh, that person, then they'll just go and, like, you know ratio something so that's downvote it or respond 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 but not like or retweet and all of that kind of thing mm. and i you try and filter them out by going if they got seven numbers in the name so it's pete with like half a telephone number mm. or john with like an egg yeah or a football shirt they seem to be the ones in common well you're very handy for me there because i just watch the people who attack you and block them preemptively yeah because, uh, I mean... Here's the thing. I wouldn't block... I don't block people for having a difference of opinion and ideas. And, and I do think it's important as well that we start to look at, like, it's okay to hold different opinions from my friends Yeah. on some things, you yeah. know? I guess there's a couple of... You know, maybe there's a couple of big issues, but slightly, like, you used to be able to kind of go, well, we disagree on that, so let's not talk about that because we seem to be getting nowhere. Yeah, I had this with a with a the last Q and A I did on Instagram. Somebody said to me, uh, a very close relative, immediate family relative, is has these opinions that I disagree with. He's this opposite political party from me. So I love him dearly. We're very close, but I feel, and I'm being told by my friends that I should cut him out of my life because we disagree on these fundamental political opinions. And my response was. Does he hold a high political office or influence? Yeah. Yeah. Because if not... Someone else has allowed a different opinion to you, yeah. no matter how wrong you think it is. If, if, if he doesn't, then all that matters really is how he treats the actual people around him. Yeah. And that's because that's actually the only impact he's having on the world. So the rest of it is just whether he believes in fairies or not. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And you can have that argument over the dinner table... Or not. You know, just fairies are racists. Okay, cool, let's have that argument. Do we think fairies are racists or not? You can get very heated in that argument, but it's not going to actually impact the world. Even in a world where he votes, is a minuscule impact. Yes. You're using him as a proxy to represent a whole lot of other things you have problems with, which is that whole political party, that whole way of thinking. But he is still just your beloved relative. Yeah. But we should wrap this up. Yes. Uh, 
where where can people find you online where can people find you there's a few more days of edinburgh where can people so a few find more you? days i'm on at the monkey barrel 9 15 p.m until i don't think i'm doing the monday at the moment that may change though because i have a tv thing going out friday night so if that sells out saturday and sunday pretty quickly then maybe we might slink the monday in it tends to be a bit of a damp squib is what i always think finishing on the monday i am finishing on the monday and i'm highly anticipating the damp squibness of it <laughs> yeah but sunday could be a damp squib as well i suppose finishing on a saturday is the only guaranteed way of finishing on i um so i'm on twitter at tiff stevenson i'm also on instagram tiff stevenson comic i am not as good on that maybe yet but follow me anyway because sure why not um and that's it really my website which is currently being revamped uh tiffstevenson.co.uk and you can watch my special madman on vimeo you can download it for five pounds do i saw that show it was delightful and i assume still is <laughs> yeah still is and i'd like to get some more yeah i'll just keep it up there for a for a you know maybe another six months to a year Yay. and then maybe eventually i'll put it on youtube but i've got other shows to record so till that happens that's the one Thank you so much for having tea with me. I always love it. You're always such a good person to talk to. Thanks.